Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 379th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a legendary star of Hollywood's golden age. She's not as universally known today as her contemporaries Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, or Grace Kelly, but she was one of America's most popular box office attractions in the 1950s, and in 1958, she starred opposite Jimmy Stewart in the greatest film of all time, according to Sight & Sound's most recent once-a-decade poll of critics, programmers, academics, and distributors, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. I'm talking, of course, about Kim Novak. I spoke with Novak via Zoom earlier this month, just weeks after her 89th birthday and the publication of her new book, Kim Novak, Her Art and Life, not only for this podcast, but also for a profile that ran in this week's issue of The Hollywood Reporter. For the profile, I reached out to Martin Scorsese, who is not only a great filmmaker, but also a child of the 50s and a student of film history, to ask if he had any thoughts to share about Novak. He emailed me, quote, I can close my eyes right now and see her in color. Soft lavenders, golden hair, and green eyes. She was born for the color in 50s films, for that kind of lighting and production design and staging. And she was such a powerful presence. She seemed earthbound and ethereal, ordinary and extraordinary, all at the same time. And she was heartbreakingly vulnerable, close quote. Nobody could have put it better. A blonde with an hourglass figure, a husky voice, and expressive eyes, Novak made her big-screen debut in 1954 and won a Golden Globe for Most Promising Newcomer a year later, when she also starred in Picnic, highlighted by her steamy four-minute dance with William Holden, and in The Man with the Golden Arm, the first of her two films opposite Frank Sinatra, the other being 1957's Pal Joey. One of America's top 10 box office draws of 1956, she graced the covers of Life in 56 and Time in 57 en route to making both Vertigo and Bell Book and Candle opposite Stewart in 1958. One would think that she was on top of the world, but just a few years later, along with the studio system from which she emerged, she was gone. As the New York Times once put it, quote, Kim Novak's was the last face that classical Hollywood presented to the world. Close quote. For many, it was a delight to see that face reemerge at the Oscars in 2014, when Novak presented two awards with Matthew McConaughey. For more than a few, though, including Donald Trump, it was an occasion to mock an octogenarian for not looking like she used to. Novak later acknowledged that she had gotten cheek fillers ahead of the show to boost her confidence about her appearance, a decision she quickly regretted. But the mean-spirited backlash reminded her why she had fled Hollywood in the first place. Over the course of our conversation, Novak and I discussed her unlikely journey from a difficult childhood in Chicago to the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, the challenges and rewards of working at Harry Cohn's Columbia and under the studio system in general, what it was like making Vertigo, and what happened during that same time that led people to believe she was having a forbidden love affair with Sammy Davis Jr., when in fact, she says, their relationship was never romantic, why she ultimately felt she had to leave Hollywood and instead wound up living a quiet life, making art and caring for animals 11 hours away in Southern Oregon, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ms. Novak, thank you so much for uh, joining us. It's great honor to have you on the podcast and uh 
we always begin on on this podcast with just the very basics for anyone who may not know. Can you just share where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living? Oh my dear, I go way back, aren't we? Yeah, my my uh, I was born during the Depression, and uh, so my father was a history teacher. He was lucky to get a job on the railroad. So he worked on the railroad for years, and my mom worked in the bra and girdle factory to try to make ends meet. One worked nights, one worked days. And somewhere in the middle, I went to school. And so um, that's about it for the childhood, I think. Yeah. I, you know, the way I've, I've, I spoke to you a few years ago, I was lucky enough to interview you around the time you were being honored in Cannes. So that was 2013. I remember during the prep for that, and then again for this, just kind of being surprised that you were this very shy kid. You grew up in a kind of rough neighborhood. And uh, you've said that your parents were very um, just emotionally removed, but that your grandmother would take you to the movies. And so I just wonder if that was the big escape. That was, did you dream even then that you would become an actress? You know, Scott, that's interesting. No one's ever brought up that point, but you're right because my life was very held in. But on Saturday afternoons, my grandma would take me to the movies and you're right. It was a, a, a big escape for me. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah. I think it did. I think it did lead to me feeling that all of the arts were a wonderful adventure. Well, um, I wanted to follow that up by asking you, you know, you, part of the reason we're, we're speaking now is you've got this great book that has come out with your art and we're looking at some of it behind you in the zoom. It's beautiful. Um, and I'm going to obviously ask you a lot more about the the latest developments when we go chronologically here, but you started out very young with art. And in fact, I'm going to quote back to you something that I thought was interesting and then ask you to react. You had said, quote, my father was a stern man. I tried to win him over. Each day as a teen, I'd walk to the nearby train station to meet him when he got off work. I'd get there early before he arrived on his train and sketch people in the waiting room. Then I'd carry his lunchbox as we walked home together. He didn't say much to me, close quote. But even then, an outlet was art. That's right, Scott. It really was. And, uh, and of course, when I got my scholarships and went to the Art Institute in Chicago, there again, it was on a, it was on a Saturday afternoon, as a matter of fact, when I'd go to class. And it sort of took the place of my grandma by that time, uh, going to movies. And so, again, it was an adventure, getting on the L all by myself as a kid and getting off and, and seeing the big city. Because we lived in the suburbs. It was totally different than that. But the big city... Wow, I mean, it was overwhelming with excitement and uh, things to do and the feeling that I was on my own where I could make my own decisions as opposed to my mom and dad telling me what to do. And my dad always saying, because I was left-handed, that um, he was really, really pushing me to be right-handed. And that made it hard. But then suddenly at the Art Institute, they didn't care if I was left-handed, right-handed, but they wanted to teach me how to draw. and. Uh, that was so exciting for me. Well, you, um, I know, probably in your mind, were thinking that you were going to go on and have a career in some form as an artist. But I wonder if you can just talk about the sequence of events that sort of delayed those plans, because it started with really being picked out of like the uh, a club to be a model, right? 
That's true. Again, that was a Saturday thing. And my mom put me, um, set it up there for me to go because I was always so shy and, and, you know, withdrawn. And she thought getting into a girls club where you mix with other teenagers. But um, I just always wanted to be behind the scenes and like to work while they were setting up for the models. And one day, um, the woman, Norman, Norma uh, Cassell, she she decided, she said, you know something? You shouldn't be behind the scenes. You should be in front of the scenes. And so she, she said, put on these clothes and get out there. Uh, but then I, I just, the only way I could do it is to think I was someone else, a model. So all of a sudden I went out there and I was a model. And, and that became um, an exciting thing to do because I, I, I would put myself in the shoes of someone else. I, I couldn't have done it just by myself. Well, so even then it was acting, even though you were not thinking, I want to be an actor at that point, right? Well, I never thought of it as acting. I mean, to me, and I was so lucky when I got to Hollywood, I had a wonderful, wonderful drama coach who believed in the Stravinsky school of acting, which was not acting, but reacting. And that, when I could react, that made it fine um, because I could be, I could become the person, but then I could react to the other person. So I never had to be shy in that situation when, if I had another person that I could react to, like a Jimmy Stewart. But back to the other thing that you were saying, Scott, uh, when I went to Hall, when I was at, yeah, going to that fair teen clubs, really, teen club, really, um, brought me out a lot and brought me into thinking, but I still wanted to be the artist. I, it never once occurred to me that I would ever be an actress. It just was not something I really wanted to do. And so getting into movies took me off the track and delayed a long time for me, uh, although I still kept painting. Well, let's talk about how you go from modeling in Chicago to acting in L.A. I mean, it was totally a, a freak thing, right? You were working as, I guess, modeling led to a, a gig for a refrigerator company, right? Yes, it was summer vacation. I was in junior college and and um, they asked me to do a modeling job that was going on tour to open a refrigerator, wear a little costume, tiny, small little costume, and open the refrigerator door and say, there's no business like show business like no business I know. <laughs> anyway, so here I was doing that, and I thought, what am I doing out here? <laughs> and we got to the end of the line, and the other girl that was doing it with me, she said, let's go to Hollywood. It ended in San Francisco. She said, let's go to Hollywood and see what that's like. And I said, well, I guess we've got enough time before I have to go back to school. So we went to L.A., and then we got a modeling job where we were there, walking down the staircase in a movie called French Line yeah. with uh, Rosalind. Or Jane Russell, yeah, yeah, yeah. And someone saw me there and said, we want to do your screen test. Well, I, I didn't take it that serious, so I, I showed up a little bit late. That did not go down well. But I happened to have uh, a director that said, just read these lines and and look at the camera, look straight in the eye of the camera and just say what you want out of life. And this particular dialogue said, what I want out of life is to be loved. And 
it came from my heart, so I could do it, you know, even though it was supposed to be the character saying it. But I was able to look in the lens of the camera, which didn't make me feel shy because it was not, I don't know, it just felt okay. It's just, and because it's what I really wanted, I wanted to be loved. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just uh, mention so that, you know, anyone who wants to look any of these people up can do so. The I guess the you you show up for the to visit a movie studio the, that you mentioned that was which studio was the French line at? RKO. 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 So you're there and the person that saw you and said, let's put you in front of the camera was Billy Daniels, the choreographer. Right. And then how does Max Arno, the casting guy at Columbia, find out about you? Well, let's see, how did that work? Well, that's when I went to the studio to do the screen test. And Max Arno came down and he he's, he said, well, I don't know what he said. You seem to know more, Scott, than I do about what really <laughs> Tell me. No. So anyway, he, he believed in me. I hadn't met Harry Cohn, though, yet. Right. All right. So you bring up the, the key person at Columbia, Harry Cohn, and I would love to ask you, since you were, in his own words, his last kind of great discovery in his in his mind uh, before he passed away in 1958, you know, he was, for, for people who don't know, was kind of famously, at least according to the legend, cheap, mean, dictatorial. I mean, he literally had a photo of Mussolini on his desk, from what I understand. He had a desk that was up on a, a big pedestal. I, I'll, I'll leave it to you to say the rest. But I mean, isn't it the case that essentially to set the scene, they were they had Rita Hayworth as their big star, you know, love goddess, as he as they called it. And she was giving him a bit of a hard time. And then meanwhile, they have Marilyn Monroe across town at Fox and they feel they need a blonde competitor with her. So partly to keep Rita Hayworth in check, partly to compete with Marilyn, that's how you get brought in to see Harry Cohn, right? That's true. But you know, that's reminding me of how I knew Max Arno because when I was signed to Columbia, I still hadn't met Harry Cohn. Oh, really? And uh, so Max Arno is the one who, who set it up. But then when Harry Cohn met me, he said, well, first thing we got to do is change her name. You can't use a name like Novak. I mean, that, you know, would never work. And um, so they, they already did it. And it was in the newspapers and announced, oh, Columbia has a new uh, star that or starlet, as they called me then, which I hate. <laughs> um, and, and her name is Kit Marlowe. I read it. I read it before even hearing about it. And I said, I've got to meet Harry Cohn. I can't believe they're going to try to change my name without even telling me. And so they said, well, are you sure you're ready to meet him? I said, yes. Why Kit Marlowe? They hadn't even seen who I, who I was, certainly not on the inside, yet alone the outside or the inside. But the, Kit Marlowe sounded to them like, well, what they wanted, they even said in the article, she likes cats and she's like a kitten. And so we thought Kit. And Marlowe is a name that's none. It has no religion or no authenticity behind it. So we'll just name it that. And I went in and I said, my name is Novak. I'm not going to change my last name. In the meantime, I had to walk through that long walk to the head of his, where he's sitting on that plateau. And it was scary. All around he had pictures of people like, you know, Humphrey Bogart and all these stars. And for a moment, I got a little overwhelmed. And I thought, well, wait a minute, I'm here to talk about my name. 
I have a past, and I hope I have a future, but my past, that I have to live with. I mean, it wasn't perfect. I had a lot of things that weren't, but they're all part of who I am. And so I'm not going to change my last name, even change the first name. And he looked at me and his jaw dropped. It's like no one had ever talked. And if I'd have, if I'd have known what I knew then after. But I, I was just so offended. And I'm glad I did it because he, and he, so he just picked a name that he said, well, what do you want your name? I said, well, my last name, I don't care what you make my first name. He said, well, how about Kim? I said, well, that's better than Kit. <laughs> and we should say that uh, they, that your, your birth name is Marilyn Novak and they couldn't have another Marilyn, right? Because of uh, Monroe. Exactly. And that made sense. I understood that. That made sense, but not my roots. You know, your roots are, where you came from, the journey you went on all the way. And that's got to be part of you, especially since, well, of course, I didn't find out till later, but if you want to be a reactor, which is what I am and what I'm proud to be, I would not feel proud to be an actor because for me, acting would be pretending to be something I wasn't. And that's not who I am. Well, in in terms of feeling, you know, your authentic self, you also resisted when they tried to do what they did to so many people, which was not only change your name, but really alter your appearance, right? Yes. Sat me in a makeup chair, put a thing around my neck and started to change. And they were taught, he was saying it while I was at it. I will try you out with a Joan Crawford mouth. And they're putting on this, and then we'll, we'll put on this person's. And by the time I looked in the mirror with all of these changes, I had no sense of myself as well. I mean, I can understand putting on makeup, but you don't you don't change. I mean, you can't be have a Joan Crawford mouth and a Ingrid Bergman's something else. You know? And and so I and when they went to to shoot the movie, then the first thing I do is run to the ladies' room and wipe off as much as I could so that I could maintain. I just needed to feel me. Yeah, sure. Now, all that being said, it does seem like you had a bit of a love hate relationship with Cone, because on the on the one hand, not hate, I, I, that's too strong a word. But I mean, you obviously resisted a lot of what he wanted to to do. But on the other hand, when he was gone at the end of your career uh, in Hollywood, uh, you missed him. So what was it that while you were there made him good? In a lot of ways, he reminded me of my dad. So I was kind of used to someone telling me what to do and used to doing what I thought was right in the end. So I do a little bit of my, what my dad said, but I do it in, at least in my way. And I think he kind of got used to that, especially when he saw that it was working in a way, you know. And also one time at Christmas, I, I threw, I, he, I, I can't think of what you'd say, but I surprised him. I made a batch of homemade fudge. <laughs> He looked at that and he didn't know what to say or do. For a minute, I almost thought he was going to cry because I don't think anyone ever brought him any presents. But I did it because um, I i guess I did it really because I had a taste for fudge. But I thought, I think I'll make some for Harry Cohn too. Well, it's, sort of, it, it's, it's like when you bring the, when you go to meet your dad at the train station. That's true. That's true. Trying You're to meet. <laughs> You've got a lot of wisdom there. Where'd you learn all that? Not all in Hollywood. <laughs> Did you? No, no, no. But uh, um, 
I guess uh, one other thing that, you know, wasn't really spoken about in those days, but but obviously in the last few years, people in this town have have come to feel they can speak more freely about was just sort of inappropriate behavior. And Harry Cohn was accused of doing a lot of that. I mean, Rita Hayworth even said in her later years that he had been very inappropriate with her uh, kind of in a me too way before there was such a thing. Um, I just wonder, did you ever even know about that side of him or was that, is that not something that he pulled out with you? No, I, I, I am surprised he do with anyone because he was a man that wanted to keep maintain control. And if he lost control in some way by making out with somebody, uh, he, he wouldn't be able to control her like he did. So, no, I think that he, he always stayed the father image to me, not always in the best way, but, but you're right. When he passed away, I was lost because the one thing he was really good at is he made, made wise decisions. Although he did not approve of me doing vertigo, he didn't think it was a good script. Um, and he didn't like me in the middle of the night because he thought it wouldn't be commercial, but he was right there, but it was a good movie. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. But when, when he died, nobody knew how to be the dictator of the studio anymore. Nobody knew how to say, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. I mean, you know, he, he would let directors and all direct, but he, he controlled what movies, um, were available to do. And so I, they had no idea what to cast me in other than sexy glamour movies that I just didn't want to be a part of anymore. Really. Yeah. It does uh, make the argument, I guess that, you know, some people argue that there is such a thing as a benevolent dictator is better than getting rid of a dictator. You know, sometimes it keeps things together, but anyway, I guess one last quick follow up about him before I, I move beyond that is just as somebody who really loves reading about the golden age of Hollywood and also about just the Oscar, the history of the Oscars, there's been a, there's kind of insinuations in things that I've read that he would pressure people who were under contract to vote a certain way. I don't know how he did it, but they say, you know, this year we're lean. Did you ever hear of anything like that? Oh, I didn't vote. You mean in, for the Oscars? You don't yeah. mean in the election? No, no, no. And for the Oscars in the sense that, like, we're going to have to all, as a Columbia family, we're going to get behind this person this year or whoever, you know? No, I never. I didn't know about that. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> right. Well, so having been put up, I believe, at the all-female Hollywood Studio Club, which was interesting to read about. That's that's a concept that doesn't exist anymore. And uh, having been given um, some acting instruction by Benno Schneider, who I think you were referencing earlier, you now actually have to act for, I guess, really the first time, right? I mean, you had not... When you went before a movie camera for, I guess, Pushover, that was... You hadn't acted before, right? Oh, no, no, never. never. Uh-oh. How did you feel? That's a long time ago. <laughs> uh, I think every feeling and emotion went through me. Do you know? Uh, the fear, the everything. But um, I was lucky, uh, you know, to have Dick Quine, Richard Quine, who I was in love with from the time I saw him because he was like, I guess he was everything I thought a man should be, you know, including a good father in a, in a sense, as far as... Um, 
being kind and understanding. So I had, you know, I worked with people that helped me a lot to relax because I was a high strung and still am high strung person now. Doesn't get any better with age. (laughs) (laughs) That respect. So uh, pushover was, let's just to keep people, uh, you know, in track with the chronology here. You're when you were the extra in the French line, that movie comes out in 54. So did your first movie again now as as a star pushover in 54. So did I don't know the proper way to pee, pee, you know, I don't know if I'm saying, you know, how to say it, but <laughs> that's 54. Piffed. Uh, and then oh, this happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's all leading up to uh, 1955, I guess, with Picnic which was the real game changer, I guess. You're, just to remind folks, you're playing Madge, this small town beauty who gets involved with a drifter played by William Holden. You really wanted this role, from what I could tell. You tested for it a lot. Uh, Why were you so interested? And and did you relate, was it because you related to a character who wanted to be seen for more than just her beauty? Yeah, that, that is true. I could really identify with the character. And, you know, it was so well written that um, the words, I mean, I knew the whole script but just after reading it once because everything she said was was real and it was what I was feeling. But it was Josh Logan who didn't want me in it, really, the director. But Harry Cohn insisted. And that's, again, where I say Harry Cohn, he, you know, he, he was there rooting for you. And he just had me kept doing screen test after screen test till Josh Logan said, yeah, okay. But he had really wanted this role to play it because she did that on Broadway and did a beautiful job. Uh, But my interpretation was totally different. And um, I personally think it was, I made some good choices because at that time, everything was so theatrical. They wanted you to be theatrical. They thought that was a sign of good acting. But I, I, I just wanted to, as I say, react and be real and give myself to it. It was easy to give myself to being Madge because I was Madge. I, I didn't want to be looked at because I was pretty, you know? And so, and she even says that, you know, well, if she didn't, she should have. Them. But um, yeah. And I think that um, actually Josh Logan in his book said that it was kind of like wearing a crown of thorns. I thought, yeah, that is a lot what it's like because you're out there and you can't cover up your face, but it's like at the same time, it's torture. It's torture because they're looking at the facade rather than looking like where you're coming from or where is it? It's, you know, and you you can't always project it when they put on all kinds of glamorous clothes on you and things that are sparkling so that everything's sparkling on the outside, but they don't get to see what's sparkling on the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and this was Josh Logan's directorial debut. And I wondered if you're, you know, my understanding, you, you, he, to get what he was looking for from you, he was actually physically rough, right? I mean, it sounds like that would stuff that would not stand today. Well, yes, absolutely. He'd go in there and it's a scene where I'm supposed to be crying or something. He'd shake me, take me by the shoulder and shake me. I had bruises all over my arms because he just... And then when he'd work with Susan Strasberg, who has played my sister in it, he knew that she studied with her father in the, in the whole thing. And he said, now, when you're ready, just lift your little finger and I'll roll the camera. I thought, 
why can't he say that to me? You know, I mean, you know, instead of just punching me rather than to make, make it happen. I mean, I don't know. It was, it was not the best combination, but on the other hand, it worked. And after all, that's the important thing in the end. Well, and the thing that I guess worked more than anything in that movie, there's this amazing four minute outdoor dance scene with you and William Holden to Moonglow, which to quote the New York Times is almost like a quote mating ritual, close quote. It's the sexiest thing with clothes on that anyone had ever seen up to that point. And uh, I guess I wonder, (laughs) uh, was that was that just acting or did you feel something there with William Holden? Of course, now no one would probably consider it sexy, but at the time. And I think, again, a lot of times things come out of of things that seem like they're not good, but they are because there's an energy that uh, Bill Holden had in this. Gosh, he hated dancing. He was so resistant to it. It was like pulling his teeth out. (laughs) But he, he, he learned it. And and for me, of course, I I mean, having to be out there and dance, and I don't know, I, but there was a, a tornado going on in the next town. He's keep shooting, keep shooting. We got to get this, and and the energy I think that flowed through both of us, his and his minding dancing, and and me from feeling this sort of fear of the tornado going to come into, and all that had an energy. But then we turned it around and put it into each other just looking at each other and he forgot he couldn't dance. And I just went with it, you know, and, and, uh, and that scene worked out very, very nice, but we didn't think of it as that. I mean, there was so many other things in the back of our minds, but then when we got into it, all that energy turned into a positive energy for the two of us. Yeah. Well, so that movie obviously just, appears to have totally changed things for you. I know that it went to Cannes and you went with it. And first of all, let's say it made you the number one box office person in America, which is, uh, but then speaking of going, you know, to Cannes, all of a sudden, and this is like two years after being Marilyn Novak, who nobody had heard of, uh, just two years later, your your people are gossiping about you with uh, a prince there, Ali Khan. Uh, you have apparently little kids in France who can't speak English doing the picnic dance to you. Um, <laughs> yeah, doing the, just like, it must have been pretty surreal. It happened so fast, it didn't have a chance to seem, it just also just happened, you know, and it, it was surreal when I look back on it. But at the time, it was just the path I was on. It was just, you're on this path and just go with it. I, uh, I I didn't have a chance to, I mean, even when I'd, I'd look up at and see my name in lights, I mean, who would ever believe that could ever happen? But I never, I never took it as, wow, look what's happening. Somehow at the time it, it just was what was the path in front of me. And I kept taking one step at a time and the doors that would open opened and, but at the same time, I I was missing my art. And so I, I kept up with that, oddly enough, just by sketching the characters I was playing. And uh, that was a big thing to me. Well, so amazingly, in that same year as Picnic was The Man with the Golden Arm, where you're loaned out to Otto Preminger to, do, to play this 
woman who's helping Frank Sinatra's character battle his heroin addiction. And I, I know this was the first of the two times you worked with Sinatra. I guess before we talk about the second experience, let's just so that we can compare and contrast. How was he to work with on, on this one coming off of an Oscar and en route to an Oscar nomination? Well, he couldn't have been more wonderful. He was so kind. He knew I was new in the business. It was my first time away from the main studio. And and he just was so helpful. Even I remember one day when I was I was sick and I had to stay home at the Hollywood Studio Club. I was still living living at the Hollywood Studio Club. And he sent over this big box of, uh, of books by, um, oh gosh. Thomas Wolf, I remembered reading. Gee whiz, you know so much about me. And of course he is one of my favorite authors, but I, I just drew a blank. But yes, Thomas Wolf, you can't go home again. Yeah. But he was he was wonderful, wonderful to me. And of course, you look into those big blue eyes of his and you could get lost forever. Well, for for a little while you did. Right. You guys were on that around that time. You were a little involved, right? Yes. Yes, that's true. Um, And uh, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was a great experience. I learned a lot from that. Yeah. Yeah. Why then is there any rhyme or reason to why? The next three movies, I believe, Eddie Duchin's story in 56, Gene Eagles in 57, and Pal Joey in 57, all were with the director, George Sidney, who, I, is, there, is there any rhyme or reason why you were suddenly working with him a lot? I think just Harry Cohn had some kind of a contract. I think he, he was really good at his kind of musicals and movies that, which some of those were, of course. I don't know. They had some kind of a deal. Uh, but yeah, should we just say, is there anything if we were to, you know, w- one thought maybe on each of those, just because a lot of people love going back and, and watching all of your movies. And, and these are among the ones that were very well received. I mean, for the most part, I think Eddie Duchin's story playing a, a dying woman. That was uh, one where you really kind of started to feel like the character, right? I, I totally did. In fact, when we were doing the scene where I'm dying. I thought I was dying. And it was interesting because my hair, all the oils and everything came out and I started perspiring. And and it was like, I felt like I was dying because of, I guess, you know, as I told you, the way I believed in acting, I got totally into the characters and then I would would um, just react to things. And I, it was a little scary there. I mean, they, they were scared on the set because I... I, I was so into into uh, the death scene and things that I turned so pale. They were even taking my temperature and making sure I was okay. But yeah, it was just part of, I loved that role though of Marjorie. She had that fear of the wind and um, gave me something interesting to hold on to as the character when I was portraying her. How about Gene yeah. Eagles, this uh, real person who had lived and then ill-fated actress. Um, oh, you've said that this was a, another role that you loved and couldn't really, to this day, shake, right? What, what was it about her? Well, of course, I, I went ahead and interviewed all of the people that she knew, that knew her really well, like her her, uh, her stand-in and people that more from the side that really knew what she was inside, because I wanted to know, again, from the inside out, uh, what someone was like. And so I, I felt like I really got to know her. And she 
is very much like I am now more in the sense that she she uh, reacted so strongly to what was happening at the time and she could she could from one minute she'd be happy and joyous and laughing and the next minute she it was she'd be furious about some silly thing that happened. Her emotions changed so easy. Now I can understand it because I'm bipolar and I'm, I, I don't know if, they knew if they even knew what that was back then, yeah. but I'm not at all. Wouldn't be surprised if she wasn't bipolar too yeah. because of her, her being able to just react to, to things that happened. And you've spoken about being bipolar in a way that I think, you know, it's, it's great because it kind of destigmatizes it. And you've said that you think that may explain some of the behavior of your father, right? Oh, I know it was. He had lots of things that uh, mentally, mental issues that were a problem. He was paranoid and all kinds of things. But yes, uh, I mean, I inherited the genes, but you know, what you're given is what you're given. It's a hand you're dealt and you've got to play it out. And um, so when I found out I was bipolar, I, I mean, I, I thought, well, yeah, that makes sense. I could understand a lot of my behavior um, as a result. But, you know, it's, it's not such a terrible thing if, if you know how to handle it and how to take care of it. It's better to look it in the eye and say, wow, you know, just like if you had a, men- a physical illness, say, wow, this is what I have right now. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be better and to do an improvement situation. And so, you know, you, you find out and you take medication or whatever you, whatever is needed, just like you would for a physical illness, you know? And so I don't see why uh, there should be that stigma about it because it's no different really. And I, I have, I've made it a point of trying to talk with kids and people that have mental issues uh, and have fears and things because there's an answer to everything. It's a matter of diagnosing it. But even if you don't diagnose it, what would make it better? And I found that art for me made it better for me. Um, all of the arts really do. I mean, I think acting, acting, reacting um, does too, letting it out. But more than anything, I do think that exercise is also something really important. Because again, letting you the inside out and there's no better way than drawing and painting, you know, get the inside out. And yeah. Well, the other, you know, that was certainly, as you say, one thing that was not necessarily known or talked about as much in, in those days. Another thing was that, which we now are really talking a lot about in Hollywood is pay inequity where you have an actress co-starring in a movie with an actor where the actor's getting, a huge amount of money. And then we find out the actress was not, and somebody finally, you know, that's not being tolerated anymore. And I, I wonder, um, you know, you said with, with Gene Eagles, just as an example, you loved working with Jeff Chandler. He's a nice guy. There was nothing, it wasn't his doing, but then it comes out at, you know, he's getting $200,000 for a movie, which you're co-starring in with him. And apparently in that case, it was like 13,000 for the Leading lady, that that kind of stuff is just hard to. I mean, did you were you aware of that in those days? Well, to me, it's never been about money. Just the same as it's never been about acting. But yeah, I mean, 
Oh, that's not what I was in it for. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. It didn't matter to me. Although Frank Sinatra is the one who said it should matter. And he's the one who said, I'm, you're going to get a different agent because you've got to start getting getting money for what you're doing. And all. I mean, more other than play of the studio. I think I was even getting less than that, Scott, at the time, because I, I was still, I think, making. Well, I started out at 700 a week and then I went to 1,000, 1,500. I mean, but I was still under contract. And, and of course, back then they didn't have the, the regulations and rules as far as unions. And so I could work. I at one time was doing three movies at one time uh, where they had me sleep at the studio so I could be there. And I had maybe maybe four hours max of sleep. And but just going from one set to the other. And there was no union to protect it then. But, you know, the pendulum swings. That's papa, papa. And and it's like uh, from you go from one time when they're not getting enough to another time where maybe it'll be too much. Or I mean, I don't know. I can I just have to go by for me, for my feelings, what I feel like doing what I've done on. You can't you can't think about that because well you just can't I, you, I just I go more from the feeling inside. So you mentioned Sinatra and you guys reunited in the third of those three George Sidney movies, which was Pal Joey. This is you Sinatra and Rita Hayworth, and so again the woman who you've been brought in essentially to kind of keep in check. Not that that was your agenda, but that's why you were there, uh, apparently. And so it's only two years after you'd had this great experience with Sinatra on Man with the Golden Arm, and you'd been involved. Uh, and now, two years later, it's a totally different experience, right? Totally different. Totally. Because, um, he, and of course, in retrospect, I can see it now and understand it better. But at the time, I didn't. I went in thinking, oh, here's my savior. You know, he's so wonderful and took care of me and, um, on the movie. And uh, and so Rita Hayworth and I had been practicing and rehearsing all the dance things. And I thought, a chance I can dance and be fun, you know. And so Rita, who was a wonderful, wonderful person, and she... The two of us worked with the dance choreographer, worked out these incredible routines. We were sliding down a, uh, like a fire thing at a, at a fire station and, and some wonderful moves and things. And Frank came in uh, to, after we'd been rehearsing it for weeks. And he came in and he said, I'll watch and see what, you've been do, what, you do, what they're doing. He watched and he said, well, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. No, and I can't do that. No, I'm not. I'll do. I'll. What I'll do is I'll. I'll. You can do it just a little bit of here. And Both Rita and I just were spellbound because we worked so hard. And uh, he, you know, he. By that time, he was the big shot, and um, he. It was going to go his way or no way, and uh, so. Now I see it because he was a lot playing the character. However, I don't think it was right of him to tell us how to do ours, and especially with Rita and all. And she was such a good dancer. Oh, my gosh. She could do everything. And then I wanted to sing My Funny Valentine. I wanted to sing it. And I, I was excited because I loved that song, and I, I, loved, uh, I loved everything about it, and I wanted to sing it from my heart, My Funny Valentine. And um, they dubbed my voice. 
And so there were a lot of disappointments in that, you know, and I didn't like playing non-genoux, but now in retrospect, it'd be nice to be an ingenue. <laughs> Some young girl that's just coming out there and looking pretty, you know. Here I am, guys. Well, uh, and again, this was the movie where Harry Cohn is apparently suspicious of the fact that he's on his way out, which he was. He was not healthy and says to George Sidney, quote, there they are, my first star and my last close quote, Rita Hayworth and you in the same movie together. It was must have been surreal for for him. But uh, in the. Yeah. Interesting. I never heard that. But yeah, I could see him saying that. That sounds like it came right out of <laughs> Lion's mouth. So <laughs> the same year that he succumbed to, I guess it was like his second or third third heart attack, I think. That was the same year that you are loaned out, I believe this time, to Paramount to make a movie with Alfred Hitchcock. And at the time, it was I pulled up the New York Times article from that period they were saying in the press at that point that the movie was going to be called From Amongst the Dead, but of course it eventually became Vertigo. And so I just wonder if you remember, were you excited to be off the Columbia lot? Were you excited to be working with Hitchcock? What was the thought process? Yes, of course, I didn't know Hitchcock had the reputation he did. I mean, I didn't know who Hitchcock was really, but the, but Harry Cohen at the time said, I'm going to loan you out for this movie um, because he's a great director. He said, it's a lousy script. <laughs> Isn't that something? I, I mean, it, but I did you right, did Scott, because of the fact that I, I had a chance to leave the studio again and be on my own and exciting. And that lot, by the way, had more people going on. Charles Boyer and um, uh, oh, just every all the great old actors that ever were. And uh, Hugh Brenner, I remember he was like a big star at the time. And they all came and, and Cary Grant, Cary Grant left flowers at the door. And Hugh Brenner said, I said, oh, I, I've got to wash my hair now. I can. He said, I'll shampoo it for you. And he came in and gave me the most incredible massage on my head. <laughs> he washed my hair. Oh. And so it was like a big adventure wow. uh, for me to do that. And, and of course, I loved the idea of playing two characters. I mean, that I, I, I really identified, of course, with Judy so much. And, uh, and being Madeline, I could understand completely because it's exactly what I went through at the studio with them saying, well, if only you put on this and if only you change your hair, if only you, you know, and, and I'd been there, done that. And so both of those characters were, were very special to me. And I could, and of course, working with Jimmy Stewart, who was a reactor, not an actor, as I was. And so we could just put ourselves in the role and react to each other being the other character. And so we we had a perfect balance. I loved working with him as I did in a movie after. Yes. Um, and apparently, actually, the arrangement, again, according to this, could be wrong, but this was in the Times at that time, was that you were loaned to Paramount to make Vertigo with Jimmy Stewart there. And then he was in return going to Columbia to make Bell, Book and Candle with you there and so they both came out in 58, but 
obviously just sticking with Vertigo for a moment, because this is the the greatest movie of all time, according to people now. I wonder, um, I guess let's start with the fact that Edith Head was running the costume department at Paramount. And you've said that Hitchcock didn't have all that much to say in terms of direction, but there was one thing involving Edith Head and him and the costumes for these dual characters that really kind of clarified for you what you were supposed to be feeling there. Exactly. Because at first uh, I was reacting as me thinking, oh my goodness, I never wore that gray suit. And because she showed me, I went in and before I met Albert Hitchcock, I met her and she said, well, these are the sketches that Albert Hitchcock, he, he approved. And I said, oh, oh, well, I mean, he just doesn't realize that would make me feel so stiff and uncomfortable. And then, and then you've got it drawn on the picture, black shoes. I mean, I can't wear black shoes because that makes me feel like I'm pulled to the earth rather than free to rise up in my own being. And she said, you know, my dear, I think you should go and meet Alfred Hitchcock now. Let me call and see if he's in the office. And I thought, oh, my dear, what? I opened up a bag of beans here. But uh, uh, so she called and she said, I think Miss Novak is ready to meet you now. She'd like to discuss some wardrobe changes. <laughs> so I went into his office and I felt like I was like the first time meeting Harry Cohn and talked about my name. And it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm in for it again, you know. But I said, you know, I, I just... When she showed me, those were made for somebody else, the sketch was drawn for. I can't possibly wear something like that stiff suit that, I mean, and black, sh- I just, it's just not my, it just wouldn't be right. And she said, and he said, my dear, that's what you're going to wear. <laughs> and then he, he, he got up like, and it was like, the meeting is over about the wardrobe. Wow, you know. Harry Cohn was easier on me than that. <laughs> but then I got home and I started thinking about it. And I thought, this is supposed to be a really great director and know what he's doing. And, and then I started looking at the script again and I thought, you know, I think that's what he wants me to be. I think he wants me to react that way. I have to make that work. And, and that because, because Madeline, yeah, Madeline should yeah. be uncomfortable because... She's not, and she's not herself. Exactly, exactly. It was someone else being someone else, and so all of the puzzle pieces came together. They made sense because, especially when we got on the scene, I found that he was extremely uh, strict about what you wore, where you stood exactly, and the rhythm and things like that. But he didn't want to know how you made your character work. That really worked for me because I was allowed to be involved because he made me feel like, well, I mean, it's like he, he gave me the outer things that pay attention to, but he allowed my inner self to come forward, which by the way, Otto Preminger did also. And, um, but in Vertigo, I mean, I'd say, well, and at first I was used to directors telling you what they want you to do and where and everything. So I went up and I said, no, no, what, are you, what, what is it you're wanting from this? Da, 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 da. And he said, my dear, that's why I hired you. You, you worked that out. And I thought, this is too good to be true. 
this is just too good to be true. And I walked over to Jimmy Stewart's dressing room and he said, no, that's how he is. He lets you work out the character, but you better be sure to have all the other things put together. And uh, wow, it sure worked for me. And yeah. I'll, I'll just note in, in contrasting the way you were kind of clothed as Judy, first of all, with both characters, I believe you at you were wearing a wig, right? Because like now and like always, you had short hair, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, well, yes, even in Judy, because she was dark and they didn't want me to change my hair. So I, I had a hair piece on for that and I did for Madeline. Madeline's had to be glued on because it was showing everything, you know, you just had no choice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so everything about it worked for me so that I could just be me, yeah. being someone <laughs> and also being me. I mean, it gave me a wonderful thing to complicated thing. I, it's not unlike the way I paint in the sense that I always seem to make things complicated before I get them simple. <laughs> it's just a process that I that I go through. Maybe I learned it from Alfred Hitchcock. I don't know. <laughs> part of it, yes. Well, there can't be anything for an actor that's much more complicated than you're an actor playing someone playing someone. I, that's that's not easy, and especially because people should know movies are not shot in sequence. And I don't think this was an exception. So I don't know how you even kept track of what your character was thinking was going on at any given moment. Yeah, no, of course, I always learn, memorize the whole script before. So it was easy enough. And again, I, I had drawn all the different characters, so many things of what they'd gone through. So I lived the movie before I even started playing it. And so it really was one of the easiest movies to make. And of course, I wasn't acting, so I didn't have to have that added one. I just had to react with Jimmy Stewart, and he made that so easy. That movie was, uh, was a really, I wouldn't want to say easy movie, because, I mean, you had to get into, into, into the different characters, but, but again, it, was, it, it felt natural. It, it was real to me. Did you have any sense while you were making it that this is going great? This is one day going to be people are, you know, 60, whatever it is, uh, years later, people are going to be talking about this as the greatest movie. Or did it seem like it was just another project? It was just another project, but a project that I really loved because I liked playing those two characters. But nobody had an idea. I only wish Jimmy Stewart and Albert Hitchcock were alive today to see the difference it makes all this time. I mean, I was, I thought, I mean, I knew it was, I shouldn't say that really. I, I didn't know it was special, but it was special for me. That's all I knew, really. But no, of course, who would have thought? And then movies, of course, that you think are going to be sometimes turn out to be. You know, Pal Joey was a, a good movie and all, but it never would reach um, anything like Vertigo. You know, it was a musical and it was fun. It was light. Well, we should but just... People would have thought... Yeah, no, I mean, people should know that Vertigo, when it came out, was not well-received, right? I mean, I've pulled together a few things. Time and Newsweek, which really shaped a lot of people's viewing preferences, Did they panned it. 
The L.A. Times and The New Yorker panned it, Variety, and then most ironically, Sight and Sound, which now is the one that has the list that says it's the greatest movie of all time. They weren't too high on it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> you know, do the best you can and you don't know how it's going to turn out. And I wish they were here. See, yeah, yeah. It is, it is ironic, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Be- before we move, one last thing before we move on from that, I just have to ask you. You know, there's sort of a a bit of a debate among film buffs. Does Judy at the end, I'm trying to, yeah, it is Judy at that point. I don't want to get the names wrong. Does Judy fall from the tower or throw herself from the tower? I'd like to know that myself. (laughs) You know, um, you know, we did two different endings. We shot two different endings for that movie. And in one, uh, in one she jumps and one she, but I, I do think it was the version that um, where the nun comes up the stairs and, and she's, she falls, but it's, it's like, it's fate, you know, it's like fate being coming to, to the natural way it should end, mm. you know, one way or other, she was going. Yeah. <laughs> one way or the other, she had to serve her penance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and again, you went right from that, I believe, right into Bell, Book, and Candle, again with Jimmy Stewart, which couldn't be a more different tone of a movie, right? And yet you guys still had a great time. Oh, we had the best time. And Richard Quine, again, who the man who I was going to marry, um, was the director. And, um, and Jack Lemmon was in it, and he was there at the studio. All in all, it was just a, a wonderful combination i think and i loved playing a witch because <laughs> again it was it was a character that i i admired she was a white witch i mean and not a bad witch you know so she she uh, she had great fun with her as did uh, jack lemon great fun with playing witches yeah i loved it i got a dog named warlock after that which is a male witch yes before we talk about the just uh, amazing second life that you've had after the movies. I wonder if I can just ask you about two kind of big picture things that people may look at differently today than they did when you were experiencing them and just get your thoughts on that if we can. When you made the movies with Jimmy Stewart, the two movies in 1958, he was twenty, just under 25 years older than you were. The next year you do Middle of the Night for... Delbert Mann and Patty Chayefsky, who are coming off Marty, that's four years early. I mean, this, these guys were hot. Um, and your co-star there was the great Frederick March, who was 35 years older than you. Now, I know that was not uncommon in those days, but today, you know, you have uh, even just a few years between people, which there's a movie right now that people are talking about called Malcolm and Marie, where there's just a short, a small difference, and it's a it's a big debating point. So I just wonder for you, was that at all weird for you or was it just whatever? For me, of course, it was fortunate because I had two old timers that knew show business and knew everything about it. And I felt that they were very helpful to me as making me feel comfortable because for me, of course, I had, I was so shy and everything. So it was important that I feel at ease on the set and I think that if I'd been working with some young actors, they would be as insecure perhaps as I was. And then who are we going to go to to hang on to and put put you in their arms and say, it's all right. It's going to be all right. Yeah. 
when, when you hear today, like people finding that, un, you know, remarkable that there was such an age gap, you, you just feel that it's uh, it's not I guess the times were just different also. I, I guess so. I, I wasn't aware of it. I just I was more aware of uh, what they were, were portraying and what they meant to me. I, I never, I, I really never thought about it, except in my first movie. I made the terrible error. Um, Frederick Murray, who was even older than they, or than, than certainly uh, Jimmy Stewart. Oh, yeah. And, I, and he was wearing this raincoat. I, I, I said, oh, my goodness, you're wearing a trench coat. That was made. That's the same year I was born. <laughs> oh my gosh, not received. <laughs> People yeah. will remember Fred McMurray, if if not from that, from Pushover. Uh, Ten years earlier, he'd done Double Indemnity, but so yeah, he must have been quite a bit older. But uh, anyway, so then yeah. the other thing that people yeah. today, you know, may have a harder time wrapping their head around, and I, I, I do myself, is that. There was you and you've spoken about this, so I think I hope it's OK to ask. And if not, I, I'll I'll leave it alone. But just Sammy Davis Jr. was a was a very good friend of yours. And that caused a lot of problems for both of you in those days because he's a big black movie star. You're a big white movie star. I, I guess you met at a at his request. You were both invited to a party at Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. You kind of hit it off as a as friends. Uh, you, I think, have always said it was only a friendship. Um, but the point was, he apparently was in love with you. And this was something that was so threatening to Harry Cohn that supposedly when he heard about it, he had his first heart attack. And I mean, it's not funny that he had a heart attack, but that that was what would be so upsetting. And that there was then a whole underground mob thing to to shut this down, threatening to take out Sammy Davis Jr.'s other eye, uh, just all kinds of craziness. So I just wonder for for you being in the middle of that, what what were you thinking, you know, in terms of this is all going on around you? Well, um, first of all, the way I met him, I was when I was making Vertigo, as a matter of fact, and he had called my manager at the time and said, I'd like to do a photo session. I guess he did photography on the side, photo session with him. And so uh, they checked in and I said, okay, that's how I met him. And, um, but so he's shooting, oh yeah, oh, get it here, click there, da, 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 da. I said, do you ever think of taking off the lens cover? <laughs> <laughs> he had the lens cover on the whole time. <laughs> and I, I think he, uh, he had a real crush on me. I, I don't know if he was totally in love, but it was, it, he certainly had a crush on me. And I think that, uh, for, for me, then I met him, then we went to, uh, but I was in love with Dick Quine at the time, Richard Quine, the director again. And, um, and so he meant so much to me. And we had gone to a party, as a matter of fact, the yearly thing that they have in Hollywood for, uh, at Thanksgiving for some charity. And I, and I was supposed to go with Jeff Chandler and then, oh no, no, Jeff was going to take me. Be, I was going to be going out with Ali Khan that night, and so because at the time Dick was he was still married and they were separated. So what I didn't, we weren't. I was in love with him. He didn't even know. Uh, no. Anyway, I went to this party, and and Dick was there, and Richard Quine, and then Sammy Davis was there, and Janet Lee and Tony Curtis were there, and so then. 
after the, oh, so I picked up Ali Khan from the airport. We went to see Jasmine, his daughter. Then we went to the, to the big thing. And I, all that day was a work day. So I still had on the green, the green emerald green gown. And I, but I had Judy's wig on. <laughs> and so here I am and picked up Ali Khan. We went to see Jasmine, Jasmine his daughter. And then, and then, Oh, that's right. He had to go to the airport. I got him back to the airport, came back to the big celebration thing. It was quite a night with all of this going on. And Tony says, oh, we're all going over to our house. Do you want to come to the party? And I said, sure, I'll go. And I took my little Corvette, little white Corvette, and drove it over there. And Dick never showed up. Well, that's why I went to the party. I heard that Dick was going to be at the party after. And so I thought, oh, chance to see him again. You know, he didn't even know I was in love with him yet. Right. But anyway, there was Sammy. And I I um, got sat down on the couch and started taking these pins out of my hair because that wig was getting driving me crazy. So I'm taking these out and he came over. He said, what are you doing? Well, I'm trying to get this wig off. I said, my, my, my head is so itchy and I, I just got to get it off. He said, he, he said, well, let me help you. So he came and he started helping to pull all the pins. I must have had, I don't know, 30 pins in my hair and getting it off. But by the time he got it off, Tony Curtis had brought me over a drink. I don't know. I only had, I think, one drink there. But I, that's the last thing I knew. I do not know anything afterwards across my heart, hope to die. Don't, don't know what happened after that or how my white car got back in front of I was that time just leaving in an apartment. And uh, so I, I, I have no idea how I got there. But all I know is that the next day, Sammy calls and he said, where are you? You're supposed to be here. It's Thanksgiving Day. My mom and dad have dinner already. I told them to expect you. And I thought, what is this coming from? And, and he said, you know, you told me you promised you'd be here. So I thought, oh, my God, I must have. I don't remember, but I don't even remember getting home last night. But I didn't say that. Yeah. But so uh, he told me where, where he lived. And I drove there. My car was out front. No idea how it got there. And, and I drove to his house. And his mom and his sister were so nice. They had this incredible meal. And I was already lonesome to be with family at the holidays. And it was just real nice. Then we went out in his yard. He had a tree that we could climb. We climbed up in the tree and talking. And just, it was just wonderful. And arranged to go shopping with his sister. And um, it, it just, and I think there was something about when suddenly I heard from Harry Cohn, because he heard I went there for Thanksgiving dinner. And, oh, but he didn't know about it till after, because then I said, well, if you're going to be, having me over for Thanksgiving, come on over to my place in Chicago. I'll be there with my mom and dad for Christmas. And he said, all right, I'll try to make it. But then I never talked to him in between, or I don't remember what happened. But at any rate, come Christmas, I get there, and I'm with my sister, and we're ice skating on the ice skating pond. And all of a sudden, there's Sammy gets out of a car with all these presents in his arms, for my mom and for my dad and everybody. And um, and that's when the story broke about someone with a um, press thing because he didn't show up. He was supposed to be singing in Las Vegas and appearing and he wasn't there. 
And so they started tracking everything down and come to find out that he's that Christmas day at my mom and dad's having having Christmas dinner. And so it, 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 it got, but then as I say, when Harry Cohn got involved and said, you're not to see this person again, when someone says something that definitely what, what I'm not supposed to do makes me want to do exactly what they won't want me to do because I'm not going to not do it for their sake. I mean, if I, if I don't want, if I'm going to stop seeing him, it'll be because I want to stop seeing him. And also I knew he had, had this big crush on me, you know, and I, I just didn't want to hurt his feelings because he always felt that it was because he was black. And of course, I never saw colors. I really didn't. I, I mean, he could have. And besides, I always was for the underdog in a sense of the person who was the who was suffering from abuse of not being appreciated for whatever reason, because of their sexual orientation or their color or whatever. And so um, it just I think he we both were defiant a bit on that which was difficult because Harry Cohn did threaten to take out his other eye. And that's when I, I, for his sake, I thought I better not see him. And when you say see him, it was never seeing him in the sense that you're dating. It was just, even if that's the way some of these gossip columnists were framing it, you're saying it was just hanging out. Yeah, it was hanging out. And it was oddly enough, it's because I so related because family mattered to him. It really did. That's why I lived with his family. Family was important. And for me, family was really important for me. And so we had this connection because of Thanksgiving yeah. being together and then Christmas. And he, oh, the, I got to tell you a funny story. When he came to Chicago, we were on ice skates. My brother-in-law said, here, here's a pair of ice skates. Put them on to Sammy. So he puts on ice skates and there's somebody who is so graceful in his dance and in his movements. If you'd have seen him on ice, going and floundering <laughs> all over the place, trying to stand up and get up, and it was so funny. And and that brought out a side of him that I just loved because he was he was a, a not only a family person, but he was also somebody that wanted to try a lot of things that maybe he didn't know how to do, like ice skate, and but was willing to get out there and in a sense, make a fool of himself or look silly, look silly and for somebody like, you know, like Sammy, my goodness, how could he look silly at dancing on ice? What he did. Well, just, <laughs> and uh, I laughed. And we all laughed. Two really, really quick follow-ups about that. Cause I know our, I'm thinking as a, the listeners, what they might be thinking. And I want to just ask the question for them. So the night that you were at the party and then next thing you know, you're somehow home. Do you think that somebody put something in your drink? I really do. I I mean, I didn't think of it then because that wasn't even, people didn't talk about things like that. But I could never figure out how could I possibly, I mean, maybe I had two drinks, but I mean, I've never blacked out in my entire life. And how it all happened, you know, I do think someone... I, I think Tony Curtis did. I, I don't I don't want to think that Sammy did that. He was too honest and real. I don't think he would do that. I, I think I, I don't know, but I do think I must slip something because I have no clue of how uh, how I got there here to there and all that. But you don't feel happen. that I do think so. uh, what they call you didn't wake up feeling like something had been done involuntarily to you. 
in the sense of physically beyond beyond being slipped possibly well, all i can tell you i'll just tell you the honest truth i didn't have my clothes on my clothes were off i was i'm laying in bed that's all i can tell you yeah wow well so that was the the one follow-up and the other follow-up was just that you know sammy's comment Years later, apparently, you guys had obviously, for safety reasons for him, given each other a wide berth for a while. And then apparently in 1979, you both are at the Oscars. There's the governor's ball afterwards. I guess you may have even gone to the Oscars together. But you guys go out on the dance floor like everybody else at the governor's ball. And he apparently comes off the dance floor and and was just absolutely amazed that suddenly just you know, whatever it is, 20 years later, nobody even bothered to take a photo it was so unremarkable that you two were dancing together, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. So time, you know, it's interesting what time can make things right or wrong at that time. Uh, things that are wrong, like a movie that is not successful and suddenly becomes, or all of these things. I don't think there is a, a right and a wrong about a lot of things that... They seem to be at the time. You can't look in the perspective of, you have to look at a bigger image. And all I know is for me is I may not have done everything right in my life, but I, I don't think I ever did anything that I thought was evil or wrong. And I certainly don't think it was wrong or evil to, to see Sammy or to not, suddenly not see him just because they think your career is going to be ruined. Um, I liked him. I wanted to be with him and see him. And I loved his family. I, I miss the fact that I never went shopping with his sister and couldn't have probably, or if we had it, you know, those things... Time changes it. Yeah. So all you have to do, I think, is be honest with yourself. And, you know, to this, to thine own self be true. Yeah. You know, follow us night by day. Well, so your decision after that run of amazing performances that we've talked about, you know, up through middle of the night was in the end of the 50s. You had a few more in the early 60s, including Kiss Me Stupid with Billy Wilder, which was it's now appreciated in its own day. It wasn't not least by the Catholic Legion of Decency. But anyway, you decide at a certain point, Harry Cohn's dead. You're not getting the roles that you were hoping to get anymore. I believe you'd passed on a few that did end up being good that maybe you, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Perhaps you regret it. I think uh, some of the, the female key parts in Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Hustler, and then Marilyn's last what was to be Marilyn's last movie, something's got to give. Um, so at this point, you're, you decide I'm, I've just, I'm done with Hollywood. I don't, I don't enjoy it anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. It was, I felt I had nothing more to offer. I mean, I was fortunate in some of my early movies. They were really well, good scripts, good, something of meaning, you know, that you could give yourself to. Those scripts, I couldn't have learned one word of their dialogue. A lot of them, mind you, I did things after a lot of them just to keep my foot in the door, just to feel up to how things are in case something good came yeah. along, really good. But I wasn't going to just spend my time waiting around for something to happen that may never happen when I felt I had so much more to give. And and there was not the place to give it because it was there was not. How do you give yourself to a bad script? You know, you can't even learn it, yet alone say it or tolerate it. So I, I decided to go back to my first love, which was art. 
Yeah. And is that when these started uh, appearing, the, the amazing artwork that I'm looking at behind you? Is that like, was it immediate? Was it now suddenly more about painting than sketching at that point? Yeah, I mean, and you know, my in my art book, it goes in sequence uh, by the generation because I had generations of living. And so it starts in the 50s, 60s, and they show, you can see the, the difference of, of my uh, growing, I think, in my art. I mean, I've I've been lucky enough to see an early copy of this of this great new book, which is called Kim Novak, Her Life and Art. And it's everything from self-portraiture to, I believe, a, a you know, a, a vertigo related art to stuff that has nothing to do with you or the movies. And so I guess I just wonder how you would say over these years when you were mostly out of Hollywood, again, you were going back occasionally right through 1991, I think, but basically you were focused on a life outside of the movies. And so just if you want to maybe tease the book a little bit, just how the art evolved over those years. Well, you know, as I say, when I left Hollywood, that's what I was going back to. I wanted to, and plus I I felt like even though Hollywood for me wasn't as fulfilling as I wanted it to be, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot about me and about reacting, which, you know, and so I wanted to express my feelings because I gained so much, but even my feelings of how, as a child, what it was like growing up with parents like they were and, and, and what it was like in Hollywood and what I learned from Alfred Hitchcock. God knows I learned a lot because what I learned from him, of course, is, is mystery. Mystery is important. And so I put a lot of mysteries in my paintings because to me, it's all about it's all about feelings because I've always been all about feelings. And, um, and so I've spent these years expressing my feelings, expressing myself, because I've gone through a lot. I've lived through a lot. I've known so many different kinds of people. And yes, I've had me too experiences, maybe not with Harry Cohn, but other people, producers or whatever. So, I mean, there's nothing new out there to me. But there's a lot of me that I can express that was new to me then and who I am today. Totally. They are very beautiful. Uh, so many. I And yet you were never doing it with the eye towards selling them or it was for you cathartic, right? Very, very cathartic. And and yes, not for sale. I always, for the, I mean, very few originals have I sold because I want to keep those. I've. I really have enjoyed so much knowing the Butler Museum in Ohio, which is all about showing American art. And I've had my, in fact, I had a retrospective there of all of my things about a year ago. And I've made, I've made an understanding that when I pass, I want all of their choices, all the ones that they want of mine uh, going to them. I mean, I don't want to at that time have people trying to find out who I sold paintings to to get them so they can show them. I want them to be know that they can go to the museum and see all my art and know that it's there and it's protected and preserved for future generations. Because I feel I had a I have a lot to not just paint, but to express. And, and it comes out, it comes sometimes out in a different kind of way than the, the image may look like it's just a picture of whatever. But then behind it, there's all these things because I want 
the audience or whoever's viewing it to get involved, not just to say, oh, here's a pretty painter. Oh, look at you, paints pretty pictures. I don't want to paint pretty pictures. I want to make them part of their life too. And so they are get in, have to get involved in my life if they're going to look at it. Because you're going to be taken on a trip of, of, of my experiences. And that's what I want it to be. And, and I'm so glad I got this book out now because they, I'm, when I'm glad just because it's, it, it, I wanted it to be just of the art, the Butler Museum produced it. And they said, no, you have to at least write a little bit of each decade, what that decade meant to you. So on each decade, I have the paintings of that time, the ones that weren't, that could be rescued from fires and lots of other mishaps. Um, but they wanted me to write about what happened during that particular period of time of my life. And that was also a catharsis because although I did try to write my book many years ago and I lost it in a, one of my fires, I thought, no, it was a catharsis. I got what I got out of it, but it's not, I'm not, I don't want to tell my story because they always want to tell the story of what Hollywood was like. And I said, look, I'll, I'll write a book about my creature teachers because I learned so many lessons from the animals that I was with after I left Hollywood and even in Hollywood, but from creatures that live more from instinct rather than, than what they learn from other humans. But what I learned from those animals got me to be a better human being, but it also taught me about instincts and how to use my instincts. And so... And so I, I, oh, as I say, so I wrote this long ago and they didn't want the book. I was going to write a book called Creature Teachers. And, but they said, we, we will go for that. But first you got to write a Hollywood. They wanted a tell all book about everything. And I, I, I just didn't want to go there. So well, now we should, this, uh, we should just quickly tell the listeners that when you talk about creatures, you were for 40, I believe, some odd years until just recently, and I, I send my condolences, uh, just recently, you were married to a, a veterinarian, uh, was a veterinarian or an animal? Yeah. Well, equine veterinarian, horse doctor. Yeah. Well, he'd all animals, really. Um, but it, it was only natural, I think, that I should fall in love with someone like that in my life because... Um, you know, I got to be his assistant and help with surgeries. And I felt useful there. You know, I felt like I had something really to offer by caring. And and so, yes, uh, and we, of course, now have horses and I've been had goats and raccoons and you name it. But they all had their special thing that they gave to me, secrets of their own existence and uh, they were wise and wonderful. And we should uh, also note just the oddity. I don't know how to explain this, but aside from just being a pure coincidence that of the elite club of Hitchcock Blondes, yourself, Doris Day and Tippi Hedren were all immensely involved with animals. I don't know. Like Do Tippi Hedren basically has a animal preserve. Uh, Doris Day yes. lived with more cats than I knew existed. Um, and you have this experience. It's amazing. That's interesting. I, I never looked at it from that perspective. And Hitchcock, of course, didn't know that. But something about, I guess, the kind of people that get involved with animals mm -hmm. are dealing a lot with instincts. And the, yes, that has to be. So, I mean, for some reason, he chose people that were, were maybe not as, 
attached to other human beings as much as they were to wanting to understand the basic instincts and reactions of, uh, for me uh, and for Tippy, wild animals that 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 choose to be friendly with you because they trust you. I mean, to gain the trust of a wild animal is not easy. Or to gain of any, you can win a dog and cat over pretty much. You hand them a little treat here and there. <laughs> They'll go after it, you know, and say, oh, I love my mommy. Right. <laughs> but on, on, on other creatures, you know, you have to, you have to be more than that. You've got to be in tune and you've got to be strong inside. As much as on the outside, I've been vulnerable. I'm on the inside, I think, a strong person, really, because you have to be to overcome so many obstacles. And I've had a lot of obstacles in my life. Well, and you you referenced only a few. I mean, but people should know. I don't know. I would have been I don't know if I or a lot of other people could have gone on after I think two times you lost your home and most of your belongings in fires. And then there was a mudslide and, uh, you know, the stuff with. you know, as you've just so many different crazy things. And then losing my husband, uh, that's one I didn't think I could get over. It was just this last Thanksgiving that I lost him and, and it's, it's been really difficult, but. Very sorry. Yeah. Uh, uh. But I'm, I'm surviving. I've, I've painted more pictures since that book came out. I've been painting like a, a, a picture a week painting. And first thing I painted was a portrait of my husband because oh. I missed him. And, yeah. and I, I got this painting and I talked to it every night and I talked to him. For, and he's got this. He had always the best sense of humor. It's the best thing a person could have, especially in a marriage, to survive a marriage, to have a good sense of humor. And, that's great. He had a great one. Well, I've got this wonderful little smile on the corners of his lips. <laughs> so when I say something, he's always saying, oh, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> well, and I, I guess, has that been, uh, you know, even aside from how much of a loss that must feel like to be also now having to deal with the pandemic? I mean, you're how's that affected your life? Well, it, it, right now in this part of my life, it, it's... It's okay, you know, I, mean, I just as soon put a mask on and, and um, when I go shopping and whatever. Uh, I've always been kind of a, like, be on my own. I, I, if Bob's not with me, I just as soon just be with, cuddled up with my dogs. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't mind having the separation from people. In fact, uh, I'm enjoying my... <laughs> You, I can't call it loneliness because I get involved with painting and just so involved. In, yeah. And um, yeah. Well, for the last minute, if it's okay, I promise this is, this is it. I'm going to free you after this. Uh, but <laughs> I, I just have to, we, we always end with something that we call just rapid fire. The first thing that comes to your mind or the, or just sometimes it's just like even only needs a, a one or two word answer. So just out of curiosity, a bunch of random things. Um, what name do you go by when you are, Outside of Hollywood, are you Kim or Marilyn or what do people in your town know you as? Hey, you. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm Kim. I'm Kim. No, I never use the name Marilyn. Well, I I too think of Marilyn as Marilyn Monroe. I never think of it of me growing up as a kid. Um, so, but Mar- Kim sounds just fine. I, I don't really doesn't matter. Yeah, when you would show up at an appointment with your husband, were people ever kind of trying to? put the pieces together. I called for a, a horse 
veterinarian and this looks like Kim Novak, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sometimes it did happen, although most of the time it was something serious and they're so concerned about their horse that they could care less, you know, but, but a lot of them afterwards said, wait a minute, that person looked familiar. Oh my God. It couldn't have been, could it? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. When you're, when you're flipping through the channels, if you ever happen to be doing this and come upon vertigo, what goes through your mind? Do you sit and do you watch it? I don't watch a lot of television, but um, yeah. Or if any of my other movies come up, that I liked, I mean, that were good, you know, because I, I did some that I did just to, just to be working. But I gave up on my career when I left Hollywood. After that, it was work just to do something now and then. But yeah, um, I, yeah. I, and every time I see Vertigo, I see new things in it, different things. And I know other people have said the same thing. But even with someone that's in the movie, it, it's 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 special. It is a special movie. I read something. I'm not sure if it's true. If it's not, this is going to be very weird. But if it is true, I'm very curious to know, because this is something I increasingly hear from parents and grandparents. Do you enjoy marijuana? I do. No, not so much. Now that my husband's gone, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I, I do like it now, now and then, you know. Yeah. I, I I always have for a long time. But as I say, with him passing, I, 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 I don't know. I, I haven't wanted to. Yeah. It was just sort of like a thing to, to relax. Yes. I, I just, I like it to relax. And I, and I, and I, and I, I've always liked going into dream time and it, and it does, it sort of stimulates your dreams. I think a lot and all your fantasies. And I, I like that. I enjoy that. Almost there. Uh, do you keep in touch with anyone from the old days in Hollywood? Any fellow actors, actresses? I don't think there are too many around anymore at my age. Uh, I, I I don't know. I don't, I'm trying to think of someone that I think Vera age. Miles no, is I, still I mean, around, right? I mean, Do you who? keep in touch with Vera Miles? I think she's still around. Oh, yeah, no. And Tippy, I've been in touch with now and then. Yeah, actually, but that that's about it. I I, I really don't uh, do much there or get involved too much with it. Finally, if you hadn't been pulled into the French line, what do you think the rest of your life would have looked like? Oh, I'd be painting and doing just what I'm doing now. Yeah, that for sure. No doubt. No, I would have had a few more years up on it, too. But uh, I have some I've had some wonderful art teachers in my life, uh, too, that I'm still very close to and close friends with. And um, and they've been a big influence on my life. And. So I'm grateful for that. But yes, I definitely would have been in the arts, probably in the arts in one form or another. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, no, but I prefer this form. I mean, I must say, Scott, it, getting ready for today, it's like uh, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be on camera. I I, I know not. I'm first thinking, well, gosh, I've got to put my paintings around, you know, where they can be seen. And then they're like, well, what about you? You better get yourself ready. You look and it was fantastic. Like I got- <laughs> and I, uh, and your artwork is beautiful and the book is beautiful. And I just can't uh, thank you enough for doing this. It's such a treat to, I never thought I'd get to speak with you again after we did this interview on the phone in 2013. And I was so bummed also because after that, we were both headed to, can you were being honored? I was going there to cover it, and 
I then found out that my trip, I think if I remember correctly, you know, you had been so nice and said, you know, come say hi when you're there. And then I found out they'd booked my flight to come back before your tribute. And I was just so heartbroken. So this oh. is a, a really nice treat. And I'll tell you what else is, has been really special for me is that, you know, the way that I discovered your movies as a as a kid was through my dad, who grew up in the 40s and 50s and was absolutely your biggest fan. And I just want to thank you. And, and really, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Glad we had a chance together again. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.